This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Welcome into the program, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you for being with us today on the program. I know that we took yesterday off because there was the, the long Memorial Day weekend, and then today we're actually getting started a little late. I do apologize for that. If you were looking on tacticsradio.com or tacticsradio.us, whichever one you prefer, if you were looking there earlier today, you may have noticed that our entire website went down. So I was just trying to rectify that. Apparently there was some kind of issue with the uh, with the server there, but... We've got it all taken care of now. Tacticsradio.com is still back up. It still has all the audio podcasts. We didn't lose anything, but it, it was a minor fiasco that we had to deal with. So hopefully that did not inconvenience you. But as always, we're going to start out the program with our Alabama coronavirus update. So we'll go ahead and check out what the latest numbers are from the Alabama Department of Public Health. You can see there. And they have adjusted the graphics a little bit, so we'll... We'll talk a, a bit about that, but you can see there on the graphic that we have 15,396 confirmed cases, 193,759 total tested, 4,946 cases in the last four days, sorry, four, 14 days. Whoo, boy, having almost 5,000 cases in four days. That, that would be a serious news story, but that's not what happened the past 14 days. You can see that the COVID-19 deaths, there have been 575 people that have lost their life to this disease in the state of Alabama, and we have also had 1,671 hospitalizations. By the way, you'll see down there presumed recoveries at just barely under 8,000. I'm not exactly sure how they're calculating that. If I were calculating that, and granted, I'm no expert on this stuff, this is just based on me studying the numbers every day and, and understanding what I do about the virus, I would think what is going on there is those are all the people that have been tested and confirmed but have already gone through their 14-day period. So basically, however many cases we had 14 days ago, minus everybody that died. Because, of course, if they did not die, and 14 days ago they had COVID-19, or sorry, they had the coronavirus, which leads to COVID-19. If they tested positive for the coronavirus, and it's been 14 days since they tested positive, and they're not in the death tally, well then obviously they recovered, unless they have some kind of weird lingering coronavirus that's lasted for more than 14 days, which by the way, there has yet to be a single case, not just in the United States, but nation, or, or sorry, worldwide, there is yet to be a single case of coronavirus that has lasted for more than 10 days. It, they say the incubation period is 14, and I'm sure the doctors have their reasons for saying that, but as far as the virus actually surviving and a person being a carrier, that has not lasted as far as we know for longer than 10 days. So that brings us to how they're calculating that. I, I would guess that's how they're calculating that, and based on the numbers, it seems like you know roughly under 8,000 for the state of Alabama is pretty close to accurate. And so I think that that is probably the case. You'll notice that that means that there are a lot of people that have not recovered, or even if they have recovered, they may not have fulfilled their 14-day quarantine since the day of the virus's confirmation in, in their testing of it. So something to be concerned about, but that, that's a pretty good rubric. And the truth is the presumed, which is what they're measuring there, 
the presumed number of recovered cases is probably underselling it intentionally. In other words, they're wanting to make sure these people have gone through that 14-day process, whereas the truth is there's probably a whole lot of people that have already recovered that are not included in that number out of an abundance of caution. So that's just something to be aware of. One thing that I would, did want to point out to, and you can see it, we'll bring that graphic up again real quick. You'll notice that if you're looking at the map and looking at the different counties that are being highlighted there, and it's, it's pretty small. You may have to actually go to the website and zoom in to see the actual numbers, but hopefully you can see it there. But you will notice that Autauga County, Prattville, and Montgomery County used to be much less when it came to their death, or sorry, their confirmed cases rate per 100,000. And now Montgomery has surpassed all of the other major cities, at least the counties that contain those cities, within the state of Alabama. And that's a pretty good comparison because when you're comparing something that is so dependent upon the numerator and the denominator as calculating the rate, well, for example, you look down there, one of the counties with the highest rates is Lowndes County, our neighbor just to the west of us. And yet, when it comes to Lowndes County, there's just not nearly as many people living in Lowndes County. So it's possible that they have had a really bad case of it, and most of their people living within their county have gotten this virus. But it's also probably not nearly as big a deal because they don't have a major city in their county. So it's much better to compare Montgomery County and Mobile County and Jefferson County and Madison County because they have all of the big major cities within the state of Alabama. And so doing that comparison, Montgomery is now the biggest hotspot. We have the largest number per capita of people that have gotten this virus than any county in the state of Alabama. Although to put that into proper perspective, it's not like we're leading the pack by leaps and bounds. We are significantly ahead uh, with, the, with our, our current rate per 100,000. We are significantly ahead of Madison County, Huntsville, and Jefferson County. But we're about neck and neck with Mobile. We did surpass Mobile, and since Mobile likely already peaked, then that disparity could still grow. But just to put it into perspective, it's, it's not like we're way, way out ahead of every other city. Mobile is pretty close to the numbers that we have now. Now, that could change. Montgomery's is likely to continue to grow at least for a little while, whereas Mobile's is expected to stay roughly stagnant. So that could be a, a significant disparity in the coming days, but for right now, the disparity is really not that big. Montgomery County and, and Mobile County, roughly the same when it comes to the rate of coronavirus. So Let's go ahead and look at the number of cases, new cases, in the state of Alabama. And you can see there that uh, today, pretty big day by an awful lot. In fact, uh, we have had, since we now have 15,396 confirmed cases, that is over 2,000 since Thursday. Because remember, the last show that we had was on a Thursday. So 2,000 plus since Thursday and you'll notice that yesterday's spike is the biggest spike in, in single-day cases that we have ever had in the state of Alabama. And get this, the number of new cases just yesterday, because like we said, it, it's about 2,100 for over the weekend, just, just barely above 2,000 
for the entire break that we were off for Memorial Day weekend and, and being off Friday since we do the Geek End on Friday and everything else, that brings us to about 2,100. But yesterday was the single biggest spike in cases we've ever had, and the total number was 666. The new record for coronavirus cases in the state of Alabama, a Bible Belt state of all states, is 666. Who could have planned that? Could it be Satan? I'm guessing not, but, you know, possible. It is ironic, though, that that is the the new number on cases, but despite the theatrics that I just engaged in, frankly, for my own amusement, uh, the fact that the cases are increasing, definitely something to be aware of, definitely something to be cognizant of, and, and I saw out today, since Montgomery is the hot spot in Alabama right now, lots of people being very conscientious. I left to pick up my groceries at the grocery store. I didn't even go in. I just had them deliver at curbside. Uh, so I was being cautious, but I saw an abundance of caution from people, uh, everybody seeming to to be do a pretty good job of trying to keep their distance. I, I had to go there into the UPS store, so it's not like I went all over town or anything. Uh, but people are being conscientious. You can tell people are concerned about it, and that's good, because that's what should happen, especially when this stuff is going around. But considering that even despite these really big increases in our case levels are going up, which, as I've said from the, from the very beginning, when we open back up, the cases are going to rise. That is going to happen. It is a foregone conclusion. We knew that when we shut down that when we open back up, the cases would necessarily rise. That everybody knew that now they've tried to move the goalpost and say, no, no, we're trying to, con uh, we're trying to prevent the spread of it. Well, that, that was never the goal of the shutdown. The goal was always to flatten the curve, not keep this thing from spreading, but evidently they've moved the goalpost again. And so people are really worried about the fact that the virus is spreading and that the numbers are going ahead and getting on up there. But based on everything that we're seeing right now, that is not something that is really a huge issue because of the other statistics that we're going to look at in a moment, deaths and hospitalizations. So let's go ahead and look at the number of testing to see how we're doing, because I know that's always a big concern, and should be. How much testing are we doing, and how realistic is it that the numbers that we're getting are, are indicative of the overall state of the coronavirus in Alabama? And, and that's a good question. Well, you'll see, not so great over the past four days. And that's frankly, probably not a shock just because with so many people being gone for Memorial Day, either taking trips or just wanting to hang out with their family and not going out and getting tested, it's, it's really not a big shocker that testing is down over the past several days. But if you'll notice that back on, uh, I guess that would have been Friday, lots of new testing on Friday. So, in, in fact, the most testing we've ever seen. So, doing really well on that front with the testing, I, uh, if you averaged it out, I'm not sure. In fact, I, I may go ahead and just kind of make a mental note there. I'll try to do that tomorrow and to do a comparison on how we're doing on testing overall as a, a part of the population and then our 7 and 14 day averages. I'll be sure to do that, if not tomorrow, definitely on Thursday when we have our, our big show. But... That's really where we stand right now, and uh, lots of recent testing, just not a whole lot in the past 
few days. We're, we're not falling significantly behind or anything, but the last few days, not so much. And I guess with that holiday weekend, that's kind of what you should expect to see. So let's go ahead and look at hospitalizations. Now, if you'll notice here with the new hospitalizations, and remember, this is per day. So if you're looking at the hospitalizations, today is a bit higher than what we've seen over the past four days, but still roughly average, considering that we had 42 new hospitalizations yesterday, but that we only had 125 over the entire break. 125 is pretty darn low. And so the fact that our hospitalizations are pretty low, that is something to celebrate. That's something to be overjoyed for, because remember, that was always the big concern. And since we have an increase in cases, but are not seeing a correlating increase in hospitals, and, and I get it, it's a lagging statistic, and I've taken that into consideration. Typically, your hospitalizations lag behind your confirmed cases by anywhere from four days to a week. Because it takes a little while for symptoms to manifest. It takes a little while after symptoms manifest for you to actually sort of be in the heat of it, the, the eye of the storm, as it were. It's not a great analogy just because the eye of the storm is actually calmer than the rest of the storm, but catching the brunt of it, that's the best way to describe it. When you're catching the brunt of this sickness... That usually takes a few days after your symptoms first start to manifest. And so we try to give the lagging statistic of hospitalizations and how bad this is at least a few days to catch up. But yesterday was a, a substantial increase in cases. Today was a substantial increase in cases. And we saw a really big increase in cases, you may recall, from six days ago. And so almost a week later, here on Tuesday of, of the next week, we're still not seeing a big uptick in hospitalizations. Big uptick compared to yesterday, maybe. But overall, our average hospitalizations are actually down. So that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense since we're seeing such an increase in cases, unless what is happening here is what I've been saying for the past week and a half. What's going on is that the majority of the people that are now getting the virus are people that were younger, healthier, that were staying home or socially distancing out of an abundance of caution, which probably was a wise thing to do, at least for a little while. And now they're not. Most of the people that already got it, that got really sick from it, had to be hospitalized or, you know, God forbid, died from it, were people that were at risk that just were not able to, for whatever reason, avoid this thing. And so since our hospitalization rate is dropping, then that's a pretty good indication that most of the people, the new people that are getting confirmed with this thing, are people that are not taking it on the, the head, as it were. They're people that are getting the virus, but they're going on and it's, it's sure, it's inconvenient to be sick, but it's not something that's going to put them in the hospital, at least not in large rates. And the fact that the big spike from six days ago has yet to result in really any kind of noticeable uptick in hospitalizations across the state, that's actually a really, really good sign. And hopefully it is indicative of what we can see in the future. And likewise, you can see this in coronavirus deaths. So you'll look there, the COVID-19 deaths across the state of Alabama, you may notice similarly that uh, actually there's not even really that 
bit of an uptick from the weekend that we were expecting because as if you've been watching this program and watching it every day, you know that what tends to usually happen is that the deaths sort of plummet over the weekend because, and this happens nationwide, it's not just in the state of Alabama. I don't know why. It's one of the strangest things I've ever seen in studying statistics. But for whatever reason, people just don't die at a rate that is normal over the weekend from this disease. But you'll notice there, with the exception of the really, really slow day of people not dying from this disease on Sunday, there's really not even that big a dip. We were just kind of rocking along. It decreases a little bit and it increased a little today. But overall, we're really low on COVID-19 deaths. In fact, there has been no reaction to the spiking cases that we have seen previously. And on top of that, we have not even cracked 15 deaths in a single day since the 14th. Which means, I guess that's 12 days ago. So in 12 days, nearly two weeks, we haven't even broken the 15 mark. And, I mean, just looking at this data, it very, very strongly suggests, and again, Death is an even bigger lagging statistic than hospitalization. So, of course, we're going to keep our eye on it, see if these spikes lead to anything. But so far, they haven't. So far, even after waiting, after these cases have come in and been confirmed in the Yellowhammer State, we're not seeing a correlative increase in hospitalizations or deaths. Which, again, suggests that most of the people getting the virus now are people that don't have to worry about that. They're mostly younger people that were sheltering in place at the time because they, they felt that they needed to, even though they probably really didn't, at least not as long as they did. And now they're getting out and about and they're getting the virus, but then also having the virus, not necessarily having to be hospitalized from it. It's basically just an inconvenience to them, kind of like the flu. So that's really where we stand right now. Still looking good. I, I'm going to wait until Thursday until we have a full two weeks after that big spike to really get a, a chance to see exactly where we stand when it comes to the hospitalizations and deaths. But so far, I mean, really for the past week, virtually everything that I said about who is getting the virus, the data has bore that out. And it's not because I'm some kind of genius or savant I'm just looking at patterns in other states that are a little ahead in the timeline than we are and noticing similar trends. So it looks as though that's really where we stand right now and the idea that we need to continue to stay shut down. Based on the data, I just don't see a compelling argument for that to be made. People will make their own decisions and make the decisions that are best for them and their family and their own health largely on their own and don't need the government to tell them when to do that. Another really big story that does center around both the state of Alabama and coronavirus. Meemaw Kay, I, I can't get a read on her some days. And granted, she's not one of the more conservative governors in the United States. I mean, you remember that I was saying this during the primary when all three of the candidates were going up against Governor Ivey. I said, OK, well, you know, Bill Hightower has some positions that I wouldn't like, for example, but he's still more conservative than Kay Ivey. All three of the candidates that were running in the primary against Governor Ivey, all of them more conservative than Kay Ivey. By actually a pretty wide margin, by the way. Uh, Kay Ivey is, is a pretty good example of an established bureaucrat Republican moderate. 
Uh, She's the Mitt Romney of Alabama politics. The only difference is she looks like her grandma, and that helped her get elected. But, you know, that's where KIV is. There's some days, just kind of like Mitt Romney, where she does things that I applaud and, and think she's doing a really good job on, and then other days where I'm like, how on earth does the reddest state in America have somebody like Kay Ivey in the governor's seat? But that's the state that we're in right now. And this this is one of those bad days. I'm sorry, it just is. So Governor Ivey has signed Alabama up to be one of three states, along with North Dakota and South Carolina, to engage in a new experiment that 21 other countries have signed on for with Apple and Google. Now, I tend to be, because this is a a common thing with the political right and the political left, I tend to be more afraid of government than I am of corporations, but the fact that I am more afraid of government than I am of big corporations does not mean I do not fear the big corporations. This is one thing that a lot of times in our political discourse between right and left gets lost. They, They think that if you're a conservative, you think, oh, well... uh, governments are the ultimate evil and corporations can do no wrong. Well, no, governments are an evil, but sometimes a necessary evil. And corporations can definitely do things wrong, which is part of the reason that we need government. But I don't want government running the corporations, and I also don't trust the government any more than I trust the corporations. And that usually tends to be the difference. But a lot of that nuance gets lost in the political rhetoric. So that being said... I already have a very, very strong distrust of corporations like Apple and Google and YouTube actually is Google. I was going to say YouTube, but a lot of these big tech giants, even Facebook and, you know, the list goes on. But the fact that the governor would agree to this experimental project and you're you're really going to have a big question mark over your head when you hear exactly what this does So the reason Apple and Google are working together on this thing is, of course, Apple owns iPhones, Google owns the Android platforms, and so they're both working together on a phone tracing system that would provide what are known as exposure notifications, and these would be done over Bluetooth. And basically, the way that it works is if you do participate in the program and you were to, for example test positive for coronavirus, it would send an alert to every other person that also is a uh, is a person that participates in this program that they have come in contact with you. So that's spooky enough on its surface, but the exposure notifications, according to CNBC, they're saying that it does use data on your phone, not a centralized database. That doesn't exactly fill me with confidence I mean, I guess technically it's probably better than some kind of giant database, but am I really a lot more comfortable knowing that Google and Apple, because they still have access to the data, they just have to dig a little further for it. Like, they could still access my phone. They own the platform on which my phone runs. They would just have to go to my specific phone to trace it. I mean, I'm glad they're not storing that data in some kind of larger database, but I'm also not kidding myself in thinking that Google and Apple couldn't get a hold of that data if they really wanted to. So that's really kind of where I stand right now, that, yeah, I'm glad that they're doing that and taking that step, but 
the idea that this is something that should just be benign and it's just them trying to help out, I, I, don't, I don't buy that. I, I don't. I, I don't think that that's doing near enough to protect the privacy of somebody that does this. Now, granted, it is opt-in, and I'm glad it's opt-in. I mean, if it were not opt-in, then I'd say we're going full Big Brother here and, and we've turned into South Korea, which literally that's what South Korea was doing, is they were tracing their citizens on their phones. The difference is they just traced everybody and didn't ask anyone's permission. South Korea, part of the reason that they had such success in keeping the coronavirus numbers low and keeping uh, their people from, they, they didn't really have to shut their economy down because everybody knew where you were. But the way that they did that is they not only tracked your data and tracked whether or not you had tested positive for the virus or not and did all kinds of involuntary testing as well, but they also notified everybody else of where you have been with your phone tracking system. So this is basically what South Korea did. To a degree, there's some technical differences using Bluetooth instead of GPS technology. But the difference here is, is that it is opt-in, and that's good. I'm, I'm glad, and even though I do not like it, I don't think that this is a good thing that Apple and Google did, and I'm certainly not glad with our governor signing us up for it. I don't think that you could really make the argument that this is somehow a breach of personal freedom on the level of, you know, you know, you do have to opt in. You do have to give your consent, and the fact that you give your consent does, at least from a legal standpoint, make that better. But nobody should opt in. This is a massive invasion of privacy. And, I mean, if there were ever an idea, even though I know that it's a little different now, the, first, the way that the Fourth Amendment reads is that you do have a right to be secure in your own personal papers. And now that could translate into data. The spirit of the law would be protecting your data, protecting where you've been. I mean, this would be like almost chronicling your day and then turning that information over. Now, granted, at least in this particular situation, it would be like turning your journal involuntarily, but everyone doesn't have to. But I'm still kind of spooked at the fact that these big corporations want that, even if it's not for nefarious use, even if it starts out benign and with them really wanting to help people, I'm still super bothered by the fact that they even want to put this together in the first place. The fact that they want other people to be able to know whether or not they've come in contact with you. I mean, it's the same reason that I'm hesitant to play certain video games, even though I'm a big video game fan, because they have similar things going on here. I was bothered by the fact that some other nerd with a 3DS would know that I came within proximity of his 3DS, and then he'd be able to tra track, track me back. Now, do I think that that was going to end in some kind of terrible kerfuffle? Not necessarily, but the point is, it's my data. I ought to have the right to do with it what I want. And the fact that these corporations want to make that, at least a portion of that data, available to other people... I get that it's voluntary, but nobody should volunteer it. That's where I am on this. Now, Google and Apple did, stay, did say in a joint statement here, user adoption is key to success, and we believe that these strong privacy protections are also the best way to encourage the use of this app. This app. Yeah, am I, am I really supposed to swallow that? 
Because let's also remember that Google is the corporation that helps China's government censor any opposition to it. When the Hong Kong protests were going on, Google actually helped Hong Kong, sorry, helped Hong Kong, helped China suppress that movement in Hong Kong by helping it censor the internet and making sure that only the messaging that the Chinese government approved of was getting out to the masses. And on top of that, they were also the primary developers of Project Dragonfly, which was basically a social networking score to where you only got certain privileges in society based on how the government approved your actions. In other words, if you did something that the government approved of, you got points. If you did something the government didn't approve of, they took it away. They've engaged in mass social engineering projects with the Chinese government. Am I really supposed to sit here and go, oh, well, Google really cares about people's privacy. They have a moral aversion to invading a person's privacy. Uh, Not if they're doing that. Now, they may have an aversion to it because they know it would be bad PR if they did the same thing in the United States, and because of that, they have an aversion to it, which is, you know, something I'm very glad of. But the idea that Google wouldn't dare because of, on moral grounds, they would think that it would be wrong to invade a person's privacy like that? No. They basically help the Chinese government chronicle every action by its citizens and give them rewards or demerits based on how they behave. Google is not concerned about protecting a person's privacy on a moral ground. And so, no, I don't buy that. I don't buy that this is completely altruistic and Google's just trying to help out. I don't swallow that. And I'm not going to swallow that. Not until Google has completely changed its behavior. And even then I'd be, even then I still wouldn't do this. But I would be skeptical of it even if they did that. Because here's the other thing that you need to know about this as well. The fact that it's opt-in makes it basically worthless. Now, I'm not saying that we should make it not opt-in so it wouldn't be worthless, because I think that would be worse. That would be a, a much graver violation of privacy. But the fact that this thing isn't universal and that it's not tracking absolutely everyone means that the app can't protect you. It means that it would be perfectly possible for you to come in contact with hundreds, maybe thousands of people every day that did not opt in, and you would have come just as much in contact with the virus as if you hadn't had the app or hadn't opt in anyway. So if you do opt in, you're really not protecting yourself. And since it only warns you after the fact, I don't really know that it helps you even if it were universal. I mean, I guess it gives you warning and maybe you should go ahead and get tested if this happened. But overall, I don't see how you're really benefiting from that. You see what I'm saying? Because it's only alerting you that you may come and got afterward like that. I I don't really understand how that helps you much. It's kind of like, sorry, just giving you a heads up. You probably already have the virus. Okay, but we're not sure. If you have it, I mean, even if you came in contact with this person, it doesn't mean that you contracted the virus from them. So the app basically doesn't do anything. If it's just you, if, if all it's supposed to do and they're not keeping it in a database and they're not really tracking who has it, who doesn't, how effective this is, if that's the case, well, then I don't really see how it's helping anybody anyway. Now, if it were universal 
and they could designate certain areas that people that have already tested positive and people that haven't could go, like South Korea did, even though I disagree with that on a freedom basis, and I think that that would be wrong to do, I can at least see from a scientific basis how that would help slow the spread of this disease, but that's not what it's doing. And so the fact that it's not universal makes it basically worthless, and surely the people at Google and Apple already understand that, they already see that, which means that if they are doing it on this voluntary basis, why are they going to all the trouble of doing this if it's still voluntary. The only logical explanation that I can come up with, and this is speculation on Caleb's part, I want you to understand that, I don't have proof of this, is that they would be moving toward a system, or at least experimenting with a system, that wouldn't be voluntary, that wouldn't require you to opt in. Or if nothing else, just slip it into the terms of uh, service and agreement when your new phone comes out, and then you have technically opted in without actually saying specifically, yes, I want to opt into this program. So there's a number of different ways that this can very quickly go awry. In, uh, in contract tracing in general, this is something you have to understand about contract, contact tracing. Even with all of this technology, the truth is it just doesn't work that well. Contact tracing with a virus like this is really, really hard to do effectively. Now, contact tracing with certain diseases like STDs, that tends to work pretty well. I mean, it's not perfect, but the vast majority of people can remember the people that they've had sex with. That usually tends to happen. That's a normal human thing to be able to know the name of the person that you've had intercourse with. That's a lot less common when it comes to every person that I've come in contact with today, like just today, even though I was social distancing, even though I was very cautious with this, I, I can count on the num I can count on my hand the number of times I've left my apartment in the past two months. So I'm taking this pretty darn seriously, but I did have to leave today because I had to get something to eat. I had to be able to go get groceries so that I can stay here and cook and social distance and continue to do so. So when I left today. I came in contact with at least one person at the delivery counter that, that picked up and about four or five other people that I had to come in contact with while still social distancing at the UPS store. Well, I don't know any of those people. I don't know how you would find any of those people. I mean, I guess the guys that are working there, you could probably track them down, but how are you supposed to track down all the other people in the store? You see, contact tracing doesn't even really work all that effectively unless you are GPSing and lowjacking everybody. And even then, it's not perfect. And so, it's, it's just a bad, from a scientific standpoint, it's not a great strategy for trying to figure out how to deal with the virus. And especially considering that you have even people that I like, people that I really admire. We did a video about this not too long ago with Dennis Prager making the argument that Google should be a public utility as opposed to a private company and we should treat it as basically an extension of the government to keep them from being biased. Well, first of all, even if that happens, they're still going to be biased. Second of all, with all of, I mean, look, look at NPR, look at uh, PBS. I mean, still a very clear political bend despite the fact that they're technically public utilities and run by the government. But nonetheless, that argument aside here for just a second, this is one of the primary reasons I oppose and reject 
that argument. As much as I like Dennis Prager, I, I just finished his book, The Rational Bible, Genesis, I'm about to read Exodus, fantastic, highly recommend them, love PragerU videos, think that he does a lot of good work, I think he's dead wrong on this, and this is why. Because as a private company, at the very least, they have to ask our permission. At the very least, it's a public-private partnership, which could still be disastrous, but it's not the same as having all of the authority under one roof. Do you really want Google as an extension of the law? Do you really want Google as an extension of the government? Because then, especially considering what we've seen over the past two months with these shutdowns, is it really that much of a stretch to believe that some of these governors, some of the blue governors and governors like Governor Ivy, could look at this and go, yeah, we're just going to go ahead and do this, you know, sweeping. Everybody. No opt-in. This is just what is going on now in, in our state from here on out. I mean, is it really that much of a stretch to believe that Governor Ivy would be okay with that? Is it really that much of a stretch to believe that Google would want to do that? All signs point to no, and that's why I'm actually really glad that even though it means that we, you know, they're a private company, they can censor if they want to, they can do what they want to, and that especially affects me considering I'm on YouTube. It's why companies like Apple and Google should continue to be private businesses as opposed to public utilities, because at the very least it means they do not have the blunt force of law backing their actions. Let's go to something a little bit more lighthearted and a lot more fun. Alan Jackson has announced that in the state of Alabama, in the Yellowhammer State, he will be performing two drive-in concerts. Now that's cool. We've all been struggling with uh, things like how to have quality time with our loved ones. I mean, it's got to be driving people crazy that people that have been locked up in their house. Now, I'm a single guy. I live by myself, so this doesn't really apply to me. Um, it's got to be killing, especially extroverts that love those big, mass events, that love going to places like concerts, that can't get out and do this stuff and haven't been able to for a couple of months. This is really cool. I mean, a country legend, Alan Jackson, there's like maybe, in my opinion, five, ten other country artists at the absolute max that even measure up to somebody like that. But Alan Jackson doing these performances right here in Alabama, that's so cool that he's doing that and giving people an outlet to go hang out, be with their family, be with their loved ones. And uh, the details on it just make it even better. So he's calling this tour the small town drive-in tour. He's not doing it in big cities. He's not doing it in big venues. He's having all these little drive-in concerts at different venues in these little towns. And June 5th, so this is pretty cool, my birthday. On June 5th, he's going to be in Coleman, Alabama. And on June the 6th, the next day, he's going to be in Fairhope, Alabama. So I just thought that was really neat that he's doing that. And they're saying that the capacity for both is going to be roughly 2,000 cars. Okay, well, if it's 2,000 cars and you can fit on average four people in a car, I mean, I guess if you're in a Chevrolet Stingray, then you're kind of screwed because... <laughs> You're, you're only going to get one other person in there with you. But if you're driving like an SUV or a van, you get a lot of people in that thing for, uh, for that. And each, so, so you could get easily 8,000 people, eight to 10,000 people at this thing. If you have people, you know, with a big truck like mine, even my pickup truck can hold six. 
a little more if you count the bed, but I know most people don't. Anyway, so it, it has about uh, 20,000 cars that can go into each, and the prices are actually pretty cool, too. For an Alan Jackson concert, this is a steal. It's going to be about 100 bucks per car, and that ticket gets you two people. So you can get in for two people, 50 bucks a piece in a car, but you can load your car up, and each additional passenger can pay $40 and get in. So you can have, you know, six people in a car, bring them in. That's pretty cheap for an Alan Jackson concert. So I think that this is really, really cool that he's doing this. And this was another cool detail that I didn't know about. Apparently concessions can be ordered by app and delivered. So you don't even have to get out and be with the crowds and, and be around other people where you could contract the virus. You can order it and have it delivered to your car. Uh, so if you want popcorn or whatever else, you can do that. Uh, so props to Mr. Alan Jackson, country legend, for being willing to do this, to bring a little ray of hope and, and a little joy to small-town America. I love this guy. I always have. He's a really cool dude on top of the fact that he's superbly talented. And uh, I... You know, there's really no reason to avoid outdoor venues. Frankly, if you wanted to have an outdoor concert, as long as it was at least partially during the day, I think that he'd probably be fine in doing that. Um, there's no reason really to cancel anything that's outdoors at this point with what we now know about the virus and how it can't really survive outdoors. It, it, the CDC is now saying it doesn't really spread easily over surfaces. I get why they wouldn't want, if nothing else, the bad optics of cramming everybody in together. So especially if you're talking about something in your car, completely safe, something that I think will be a really big boon for Alabama, not only to lift our spirits, but also because of the economy, it'll be something to, that people can get a little work in, uh, especially with concert people that have not really been working at all since this whole thing started. They've had nowhere to work. Everything's been canceled. So uh, I can't speak highly enough about this. This is a really cool thing that Alan Jackson is doing for the state of Alabama. And I just wanted to let you know, we appreciate it. We'll be right back. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more on tactics. This is a news radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back everyone. Thank you so much for being with us here on tactics. Yesterday, of course, was Memorial day. And I know that there is some confusion, although if you're watching this program, you probably already know this between Memorial Day and Veterans Day. Of course, Veterans Day is for all those who served. Memorial Day is specifically for those who served and lost their lives in the line of duty. And so Memorial Day is, of course, honoring veterans, but a specific group of veterans that gave it their all. I was really thinking about this yesterday, and the last thing that I want to do is to make a political speech or a political statement specifically regarding the veterans that have given their lives and that we're supposed to be honoring on Memorial Day. And I, I don't want this to be misinterpreted as me using them as a cudgel to, you know, browbeat people or to get them to do what I want or to, to bring them over to my side of thinking just because of the soldiers that have left their lives. But I, I really felt that it would be irresponsible of me both as a citizen and as a person that has a big platform like this to let this go by without saying something on the matter. When each of those men 
gave their lives, whether you're talking about troops that were with George Washington at Valley Forge, whether you fast forward to men that, that fought in the War of 1812, whether you're talking about soldiers that wound up fighting on the beaches of Normandy or in the rice fields of Vietnam or in a desert somewhere in Iraq, regardless of what area you're talking about, regardless of the circumstances surrounding their death, what do you think they were fighting for? What do you think they envisioned as what they were trying to establish here in this country? I mean, I'm, I'm sure their reasons vary as much as the men who gave the ultimate sacrifice for our country. I'm sure that there were different motivations. I'm sure that looked different to different people. I mean, you, you could go back and, and look at the different tendencies within the generations and the different tendencies among veterans at that specific time from that specific war and probably get a better answer for that, at least on that specific basis. But I think one common thread that you would find with just about all of them is that they fought specifically for liberty to ensure that people back here in America, that we got to live our lives, that we got to go out and pursue our own happiness, that they, that's what they were doing. They were preserving our life, our liberty, and our ability to go out and pursue happiness, to, to go and build something, to make something of ourselves, to take care of our families, to build something really helpful that, that helps the entire world, all of those things. And I think in so many ways, a lot of what has been done in this country over the past several weeks with regards to the shutdown has been such a slap in the face to that where we've completely ignored a lot of the rights that they thought of as being what they were dying for, what they were fighting for in that battle. The fact that we are now saying that you're not allowed to say certain things if they disagree, with example, for, uh, with the World Health Organization, or we say that, that you're not allowed to go to church and worship together with your congregation, where you're not allowed to gather and petition your government with a redress of grievances. You're not even allowed to congregate in groups of larger than 10 people. And, and the press, it's, they're not going to be allowed to report things that are not in perfect lockstep with what our experts deem as accurate information. When you look at the governors, thankfully not here in Alabama, but when you look at governors across the state that have suspended gun stores and, and effectively shut down the Second Amendment, and by the way, like I said, I didn't want to make this a political thing. I'm not trying to aim specifically at the Democrats, despite the fact that I'm a conservative. I think the most egregious quote that has come out of this whole thing is when a Republican mayor told citizens, no, your rights have been suspended. Well, I, I thought the whole point of inalienable rights was that government couldn't take them away from you. That if they were granted to you by God and government's one and only job is to preserve and protect those rights and make sure other people don't abridge those rights. That I, I thought the whole point of that was that the government couldn't just arbitrarily decide, 
okay, well, this is an emergency situation, so yeah, we're, we're going to suspend your rights. No, 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 unalienable means they can't be suspended. They're innate. They're a part of who I am. And anybody that tries to do so is acting in rebellion of God to try to suspend my rights. And so this isn't a Republican or Democrat thing. There have been a lot of people over the past several weeks, unfortunately, that have just acted like many dictators and fascists that decide that whenever I say that your rights are just put on hold, then they are. See, once I, as the executive or I, as the elected official, decide that, well, your rights are just too dangerous for you to have right now, so I'm going to have to go ahead and take them away. Isn't that the opposite of what all those men died for? Letting one person decide who gets to have rights and who doesn't? I mean, I thought that's the whole point of the reason that we fought the Nazis. That was the whole point of fighting the Civil War. That was the whole point of fighting communism in the Cold War. Like, wasn't that what we were fighting to begin with? I really do think that a lot of these people that really believe that they have the authority, elected official or not, to suspend another person's right to live their life and to go out and to make gain and to build their dreams, to pursue their own happiness, and to take care of their family in the way that they see fit, I really do think that they're spitting on the graves of the people that gave their life, generations of Americans that fought to make sure that their children and their grandchildren and from generations from that point on had the freedom to make those decisions themselves. And it really burns me up that we have flipped this whole thing on its head. What we have done is we said, no, the government will give you permission to do those things when it deems it necessary. I thought the whole point of, of having agency and having liberty was the ability to make your own decisions. And yes, sometimes those decisions have consequences, sometimes bad ones, and we bear the responsibility of those bad decisions. That's what liberty looks like. What we've been doing over the past few months, that ain't liberty. Frankly, I think it's a disgrace to the men that did give the ultimate sacrifice. And that's how I use my day off. That's how I use my Memorial Day. As I thought about that, and, and this is what I came up with. Take it or leave it, you know, tell me what you think, but I just, I don't think that that's what the vast majority of the Americans that gave their lives for this country envisioned when they died for the cause of freedom. They died for people to make their own decisions, not for a governor or a bureaucrat, or somebody that has been elected on a power trip to tell people, no, your rights have been suspended. No, my rights haven't been suspended. And they never will be. They were given to me at creation by God. And you don't have the ability, you don't have the authority to take that away from me. All right, let's go ahead and move on to the Daily Dose of Stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. Now, for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, I know it happened last week, but we had the long weekend, and I had to do this one. We, we've got to go over this one. It is, of course, what Joe Biden said in a, week, in a 
well, I guess it was Friday. So weekend for us, because of course we go Monday through Thursday and then do the geek end on Friday. But Joe Biden apparently says that he is now the ultimate authority on who is black and who isn't. And so this clip comes in two parts. We're going to play the first part and then we'll give the follow-up by the host Charlemagne, which by the way, I just want to point out, first of all, I'm not going to call him Charlemagne the God because he's not God. I don't care what he thinks of himself. He's not God. I don't call him God for the same reason I don't call people reverend. The only time that's ever used in the Bible is in reference to God, and a person is not God. So that's a non-starter. I'm just going to call him Charlemagne, which is also hilarious because, of course, Charlemagne being named after an emperor that persecuted Jews. So I'm not really sure why he went with Charlemagne as his moniker. Maybe it's his real name. I don't know. But either way, so this is an interview with Joe Biden with a predominantly a, a podcast that has a very predominantly black audience. Uh, with a guy named Charlemagne interviewing him. You can go ahead and watch. Well, I saw the day that a news report broke that uh, Amy Klobuchar was being vetted, and a lot of people on social media, they're not too happy about that. And um, it's because they want your running mate to be a black woman. I don't know if you saw the op-ed in the Washington Post by some of the leading black women voices in this country, and they feel since black women are such a loyal voting block, and black people saved your political life in the primaries this year. They have things they want from you, and one of them is a black woman running mate. What, what do you say to them? What I say to them is that I'm not acknowledging anybody who is being considered, but I guarantee you there are multiple black women being considered. So first of all, from that clip, one thing that you've got to point out is the entitlement from this guy, Charlemagne. I mean, that entitlement is a foot thick. It is palatable in the air. You you can taste it. The The level of entitlement from this guy and, and his rationale. Now, first of all, he does this thing that, unfortunately, a lot of people in the media do. I try to avoid it. I've probably done it in the past just because it's such a common media practice, but I really do try to avoid it saying, well, there are other people that are saying this. Now, sometimes if I say that, it's because I really have heard it from other people and it's really not my opinion. But a lot of times people will try to do that to say, basically, this is my opinion, but I don't want to say that it's my opinion. So I'm going to phrase the question this way to say, there are other people out there that are saying, when clearly, at least based on everything I see in this clip, this is also this person's contention. He's just trying to use the shield of, oh, other people are saying. So, First of all, there's that. The second part of that is, listen to his rationale for why Joe Biden should pick a black woman as his running mate. He's saying that black women basically deserve this because they are such a loyal voting bloc. Now, we're going to get into why that rationale is stupid in a second, but even if you were using his own internal logic, that's still stupid. Here's why. Because if you're looking at the numbers... In the last election with Hillary Clinton, if, we're, if this were just about votes and just getting votes and because you should go with whatever voting block has the, the most loyal base, well, 35.7 million white people voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, 14.7 million black people did. So less than half. Now, granted, a far larger percentage of black people than white people voted for Hillary Clinton, and that's... To be expected, it was, uh, according to these numbers, they had uh, only 89%. Uh, they had 89% of black people voting for Hillary Clinton. So definitely a larger chunk of black people than white people 
voting Democrat. But if you were just going by the numbers and this was just strictly an appeal to whichever is the most loyal voting block, well then, by all means, Vice President Biden should pick a white person. There are more than double the amount of white people that voted Democrat in the presidential election in the last go-round than voted for, you know, than voted, uh, than black people voted for. So, uh, I mean, if that's the case, then going by Charlemagne's own logic, then the vice president should be a white person. But that's incredibly stupid because, of course, you shouldn't pick a person based on the color of their skin. I thought that that's what we were all, you know, moving towards is that we all wanted there to be equality and you got a job or you were considered for something not based on the color of your skin or your whatever's in your pants. You were chosen based on whether or not you would do the best job or not. I thought that that's what, for the longest time, I realize that this isn't a mantra of the Democrat Party now, but for the longest time, especially back in the days of Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Union, they were saying, no, no, treat us all equally. Judge a person based on the content of their character, not based on the color of their skin. This guy's saying the opposite. Please choose people based on the color of their skin. Be a racist. Specifically pick out a black woman. So he's, he's asking the president to pick as, or sorry, the, the presidential candidate, I should say, to pick as his vice president somebody that is specifically a woman and black, which means he's asking the, the presidential candidate, please be a racist and a sexist when you're considering who, <laughs> who did you. It's really a heck of a thing. Sane people do not think that way. Sane, rational people do not think, well, black women vote, a large percentage of them vote for Democrats, so he owes us this. Well, first of all, you're not even close to the biggest voting block. But even if you were, that's still dumb. You should pick the person that will be best for the country, that will do the best job as the vice president, not because of the color of their skin or because of whether or not they are a man or a woman. That's not something... That should be the case. The most qualified person, I mean, obviously should get it. But I, I just love the entitlement mindset and the tribalism going on in this clip. Well, you, you should pick somebody specifically from our tribe because we're so loyal to you. Well, no, that's stupid. Why don't we just pick somebody that would be really good at the job? That would make sense. So anyway, here's the second part of this same. And this is right after that first clip concludes. Well, you know, Thanks so the, much. That's really our time. I apologize. You can't do that to black media. You I can't do that to white media and black media because my wife has to go on at six o'clock. Okay. Oh, uh oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. Cause I a, will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more okay. questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. Man, there's a lot to unpack in that clip, but a couple things, first of all, like I said after the first clip, and it was obvious even then, the entitlement mentality is so thick in the air during this interview. You can't do that to black media. First of all, black media? Why is there a black media and a white media? And I do think it's funny that Joe Biden basically says, I do that to black media, I do that to white media. What is white media? Like, when I watch on CNN, Jake Tapper, is that white media because the guy happens to be a white guy? I assume that there are black people that also watch Jake Tapper. 
even though the audience is predominantly black for The Breakfast Club, the program that he's on right now, I would assume there are at least some non-black people watching. It's such a ridiculous thing. Like, you can't do that to black media. Again, this is Charlemagne asking presidential candidate Biden to be a racist. He's saying, I know you, because you heard his producer there say, I'm sorry, we're out of time. We got to go to something else. He's saying, you can't do that to black media. So what he is doing is saying, whatever other media that you're doing, ignore them because they're not black media and pay attention to me. Give me extra time because I'm black. In other words, he is asking for a special favor specifically because the color of his skin happens to be darker than the person that he is presumably going on with next. I'm not sure who would that, that would be at 6 o'clock. He's saying something about his wife has an interview then, but regardless, think about what that means. He is asking for black privilege. He's saying the color of my skin merits that you spend more time with me, that you not leave this interview until I feel like this interview has been concluded because I'm a black guy. That's insane. It's hilarious to me that the same people that would, I'm sure, accuse somebody like me, who has a far smaller audience than him, by the way, of white privilege, saying, no, no, I, I can, by the color of my skin, pigeonhole you and, and, you know, try to guilt you into staying on because I'm a black guy. I mean, the entitlement mentality, it really is just so insane. And that was a perfect example of it. But... The second part of that, of course, is what Joe Biden, the vice, the presidential candidate, had to say. Joe Biden made the mistake of saying the quiet thing out loud. And this is a mistake that politicians make on a regular basis, it seems like, in our recent political climate. A great example is President Trump. He has a habit of saying the quiet thing out loud. For example, when he said, look, we're not going to be too harsh on the Saudis because we need their oil. Okay, well, that may be true, but politically, you're not supposed to say that. R Republicans would all agree with that, more or less. But that's not something you're supposed to say out loud because of how bad it plays in the, the political landscape. And, and, you know, that's one of the things that people find refreshing about Trump is that he's honest about those things. The Democrat majority whip recently said essentially uh, a similar thing where he accidentally said the quiet thing out loud, where he said that, hey, this coronavirus, that's a perfect opportunity for us to get a whole bunch of the stuff that we want done, done. Which went exactly along with what conservatives were saying about this thing the whole time. Isn't it amazing that all of their solutions to coronavirus are all of the policies that they've been pushing for the last 20 years? Somehow it just happened to just line up that all the solutions to coronavirus happen to be things like a universal basic income and universal government-funded health care <laughs> and so on and so forth. Isn't that amazing how all your solutions to this problem uh, are all the same solutions that you've been talking about your entire career? So that was just basically a revealing of what all the Democrats were thinking. This is a great opportunity for us to go ahead and get things through. This is Joe Biden saying exactly the same thing. Joe Biden's mistake is that he said a truism that people in the Democrat Party have believed that black votes basically belong to them that they don't even have to worry about currying black people's votes because, you know, black people are going to vote for us anyway, because if the alternative is us or a Republican, they're going to vote for us every single time. We don't have to cater to them. I mean, heck, somebody that I have very little political, uh, I have very little in common with them politically is the best way to say this. A guy from our own state, Charles Barkley. I mean, 
Auburn guy, somebody that I really like as an athlete, don't agree with him much on politics, even though his antics on uh, his sports commentary are hilarious. He said a while back, he said, look, Democrats only care about black people when it comes time to vote, and they pretty much ignore us for the four years in between each of those times. And he's right. And the reason that that happens, the reason that that happens is ultimately because they know where your vote is going. They don't feel like they have to earn your vote because they know when election day comes, you'll show up like the good little voters that you are because they feel like they own you. And I know that that was wildly offensive. I meant it to be. And here's the thing that people really need to understand. That the same people, and a lot of them black people, that have spoken about this. I know I saw uh, Donna Brazil speaking about it. I've, I've seen other people uh, through the media, you know, talking about how, well, Joe Biden should have apologized, but then they'll explain it away. Those same black people that are saying that that was inappropriate for Joe Biden to say have been both implicitly and in some cases explicitly saying exactly the same thing for a really, really long time. Been saying essentially that, well, you're not really black if you would consider voting for a Republican. You're not really black if you hold conservative values. People that have called people like Justice Clarence Thomas and Uncle Tom say horrible things about guys like Ben Carson and Alan West and Candace Owens and David Webb. They basically say, well, well, you're really just a white person if you don't vote Democrat, that part of having a black identity is voting for Democrats, which is hilarious when you consider that that was actually the opposite was true as recently as the 1960s. But nonetheless, well, you know, there's some debate. There was a lot of crossover in the 1930s, and that that final nail in the coffin coffin really hit in the 1960s. But anyway, uh, that being said, when you look at this, that is the implicit thing within what Joe Biden was saying is basically, look, I've already got your vote. I don't have to worry about you. I don't have to come on your black media show and curry your votes because you know what? You're going to vote for me anyway. If it's between me and Trump, I know you're going to show up to the polls and vote for me. So why should I bother worrying about getting your vote? And here's the thing. I know that a bunch of my black viewers, and keep in mind, I live in a city, Montgomery, that is 70% black. So I'm aware of this. I know that a lot of the people that are watching that are looking at that and saying, Caleb, it's wildly offensive that you're saying that Democrats basically think that they own black people's votes. Good. It was intended to be offensive because that's what they think about you. And this is not something that is exclusive to the Democrats. It's not. It is exclusive to the Democrats on the, the idea of black people being this way. But Republicans are just as bad. They do exactly the same thing. And one of the primary groups that they do that with is the group that I'm in, white evangelicals. When it comes to white evangelicals, they know that come election day, the vast majority of us, probably in an even larger percentage than the black community, I mean, the ratio for Hillary Clinton to, to Donald Trump in the last election was, as I was saying earlier, 89% of black people voted for Hillary Clinton. I'm guessing for white evangelicals, it was like 98 voted for Republican. 
That's a reliable voting block. Does Republicans know they don't have to do anything to win that vote? They don't have to do anything to reach out to that community. That's in the bag. I don't have to spend time campaigning for or doing things that would please that specific demographic. And so this is not something that I'm saying it only applies to black people. This applies to us too. Because when it comes to politics, when it comes to voting, your vote only matters when people don't know where it's going. Your vote is only going to change something when it's not owned by one particular person or party by default. To give a great example of this, this is a quote from Donald Trump in Cedar Rapids back in 2016 at one of his rallies in Iowa. He said, and I quote, If you like Donald Trump, that's great. Judges, Supreme Court judges have no choice. Sorry, sorry, sorry. You have no choice. So, Donald Trump, you'll have to vote for me anyway because of the Supreme Court justices. Doesn't matter whether you like me or not. I don't have to worry about your vote. You're going to show up anyway. Now, this, you know, you have to read between the lines a little bit more than what Joe Biden said, but it's the truth. Republicans and people on the right, they know that dutifully, like clockwork, every single election time, when election time comes around, when it is time to vote, the white evangelical Christian is going to vote for the Republican. They don't have to do anything to earn our vote. And Democrats know exactly the same thing is true with the black community, and that's why neither side serves that community very well. Because they know they don't have to worry about losing your vote. And so I say this to Christians of all stripes, all races. If you want to have an actual influence over your politicians, if you want to actually make a change, the best way to do that, the absolute best way to do that, is to let them know that they have to earn your vote. That you're not just going to vote for them by default. That they actually have to pass policies and have a record showing that they are going to do the things that you yourself would do if you were in office. Unfortunately, where we are now, we get the state of politics that we deserve. Black people get the Democrats that they deserve. White evangelicals get the Republicans that they deserve. And both of us are disgruntled and think that nobody listens to us specifically because they don't. That's not just an imaginary sense. They're really not listening to us. And I just explained to you why. Joe Biden, in not so many words, just explained to you why on the Democrat side, I just read a quote from you from Donald Trump explaining why they don't pay attention to you on the Republican side. That's why. If you want to have an influence, your vote has to be earned. You can't just give it to somebody because they have a D or an R behind their name. I got so frustrated, and I know I'm venting a little bit here, but I got so frustrated with people on the right back in the 2016 election, and remember, I wound up not voting for President Trump, telling me that, no, no, I have to vote for Donald Trump or else I'm not really a Christian. If I don't vote for Donald Trump, then I am doing something that is abiblical. I had people, brothers in Christ, tell me that flat out. It said, basically, you can't be a Christian and not vote for Republicans. I mean, if that's not an indication that somebody owns you, 
that you're basically, you're already spoken for and you're going to do what they want you to do because it's what they want. That's exactly the same sentiment that was reflected in Joe Biden telling him, you know, you're not actually a black person if you vote this way. It's the same thing, just in a different form. And we get the state of politics we deserve because we've continued to play this game because we've continued to not make politicians earn our vote. This is what we got. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on Tactics. Our chaplain's report today is going to come from the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be continuing our series there. And this is, it doesn't require a whole lot of introduction, but suffice it to say, just to get you caught up, at this point, Saul has already been pretty well established as the king of Israel. There's really not a whole lot of dispute left as to whether or not he's the real true king. And so we see this episode unfold in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, verses 1 through 5. Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice and all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am, bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed whose ox I have taken, or whose donkey I have taken, or whom I have defrauded, whom I have oppressed, or from whose hand I have taken a bride to blind my eyes with. I will... Sorry. I'm going to start that part over. Whom I have oppressed, or whose hand I have taken a bribe to blind my eyes with. I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. He said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, He is a witness. This is a really interesting little episode at the tail end of Samuel's life. He understands that it's not going to be real long before he passes from this world. And he's seen all kinds of things happen in Israel in his day. He has been the one to anoint Israel's very first king. He has been kind of the chief prophet and judge over Israel for a while before a king was put into place. His sons wound up betraying and and taking bribes and doing all kinds of untoward things. But he never did. And so there's a a couple of really big takeaways I want us to take from Samuel's little speech here. First of all, I think Samuel is very aware, and you can tell by the speech, he understands the inadequacy of self-reflection. Self-reflection is a great thing. I wish the world did a lot more self-reflection. I think we as a human race would be made significantly better if we did more self-reflection and thought to ourselves, 
man, am I, I doing the right thing here? Am I really living the way that I'm supposed to? Am I really relating to God the way that I should? That kind of thing. Self-reflection is incredibly important to the Christian ethos, and I'm not downplaying the importance of that. But Samuel realized that there are shortcomings to it. That sometimes your own self-reflection isn't enough. Part of the reason that God specifically always had his people, whether you're talking about the people of Israel or the people that came later in the form of Christianity, the reason that it was always really important to him to have them in communities as opposed to just off by themselves, is that self-reflection has blind spots. Sometimes, if it's something that you don't realize that you're doing wrong, or something that you don't realize you're doing the correct way, you could be completely unaware of the fact that you're missing the mark there. And it takes a second person to come in and say, no, this is where you're falling short, this is where you did wrong, this is what needs to be corrected. And so Samuel comes before Israel and says, hey, look, I don't think I've done anything like this. I don't think that I've made any mistakes. I don't think that I've done anything wrong, at least in this one specific facet that he's talking about. I'm sure Samuel didn't think that he was mistake-free. I mean, the whole episode with his sons is a pretty clear indication of that. But he's saying, okay, is there anybody whose donkey or whose livestock I've taken when I shouldn't have? Is there anybody that I've defrauded or had some kind of, you know, taken a bribe or something like that? If there is anything that maybe I'm missing here, y'all let me know. And they all are looking around like, well, no, Samuel, you've been a great priest. You've been a great prophet. You haven't taken any bribes, you haven't, you know, cheated somebody out of his livestock, trying to use the law as a cudgel to to get what you wanted. You've not done any of that. Which I'm sure Samuel took as a massive relief, and as somebody who is a, a minister himself, I can tell you, like, even if you don't think you've done anything wrong, opening yourself up to that level of criticism to the people that you serve, that's nerve-wracking. I'm sure it was for Samuel, too. It wasn't an easy thing for him to do, But it showed his character. It showed that he cared enough about doing the right thing, about being God's servant and doing things the right way, that he was willing to open himself up to that criticism. And that's something that I think is sorely lacking in our society today. We don't want to be open to criticism. I know I've harped on this before, but I can't stand it when people say, well, I'm just going to cut all the toxic people out of my life. Nine times out of ten, what that means is, if anybody thinks I'm doing anything wrong, I'm going to get rid of those people. I'm going to have no communication with them from here on out. Well, there are some times where you do have to cut people off. There are some times where even the Bible describes that it's not wise to throw, cast your pearls before swine. And the Bible even recommends that if there is somebody that tempts you or puts you in evil company, that you don't need to be around those people. But that's not even what I'm talking about. Most people in today's society even with somebody that is well-intended and has their best interest at heart, they think even the minimum amount of criticism is enough reason to just cut that person out of their life completely. And Samuel, he's looking for criticism. He's going out there and saying, hey, if I've got some blind spots, somebody please tell me. Because he understands that he's human. He understands that he can't see the angle of everything perfectly, especially when he's looking through his own eyes. 
self-reflection tends to give us a rosier view of ourselves than is probably realistic. And that's why it's so important to understand that something that the Bible prescribes over and over again is that sometimes judgment from other people is needed. A lot of people completely misunderstand the idea of judgment in the Scripture and say that, oh, Christians are supposed to never judge. No, in fact, we're supposed to seek out the counsel and judgment of other people, our brothers in Christ, to try to figure out where we're missing the mark and how we can get better. That's something Samuel does here, and I commend him for it. But I think the secondary lesson that we can take from this is that the Bible, especially for people that are in positions of spiritual leadership, we see this a lot in Titus and First and Second Timothy because those are the pastoral epistles, the epistles that give us insight into what church leadership is supposed to look like, how it's supposed to function, that kind of thing. One of the phrases that gets used a lot when it refers to church leadership is to be above reproach. Now, this is something that all Christians are called to. But it's specifically harped on with people that are in leaderships of uh, who are in positions of leadership when it comes to spirituality. Samuel understood this too. Even though this is long before those requirements were put in place, he understood that somebody that is acting as a representative of God on this side of eternity has to be somebody whose personal character needs to be above reproach. Doesn't mean you don't make mistakes, doesn't mean you don't occasionally miss the mark. But when you do, you apologize, you forgive, uh, you ask for forgiveness, and you try to make it right. And that's what Samuel is trying to do here. He's saying, if I've screwed up anywhere, right here, right now, I'll make recompense. If I've taken a bribe or I've made some kind of misjudgment, I will make it right right here. I will seek out reconciliation. I will take of whatever I have, and I'm going to make sure that it is made right and I have reconciled with whoever I have wronged. See, that's the other part of this, that to be effective as a representative of God, to be effective as a person that other people look to to try to figure out what God's like and, and who He is, you better make sure that you live a life above reproach. That even when people could point to your shortcomings or your inadequacies or idiosyncrasies, they say, yeah, but, but he works real hard at it. You know, like maybe he has a particular issue with this sin, but he is, he is doing his best to get over it. Or, you know, sometimes this guy has a tendency to be a little arrogant, but man, he, he really tries to tamp that down. And if you tell him, he, he apologizes for it right away, that kind of thing. Somebody whose character is above reproach, not a perfect person, but Samuel understood that for other people to he didn't want to ever give somebody a reason to lose their faith in God because of a stupid mistake that he made. And he's saying, since, since I'm close to the end of my life, you already have a king in place, you already have other prophets in place that will take up the mantle when I'm gone, let me know now so I can make it right before my life ends. That's the kind of strong character, the desire to do the right thing, because a lot of people would probably rather, let me just ride this out until I die, and then I don't have to worry about it. He's saying, no, I want to go ahead and make a reconciliation right now to make sure that before I pass on, that people don't have a reason to have reproach against me, that I am right in the sight of God and man as much as I can be. And I think that that's the same standard that we're supposed to have as Christians. 
yeah, there are always going to be people that don't like us. Yeah, there are always going to be people that complain about us. But we better make darn sure that we're doing the absolute best that we can to make sure that we also have a character that is above reproach. Because remember, when other people, especially if they know that you're a Christian, and if you are, then they should, they're going to be looking to you to figure out, what does a person that tries to live like Christ look like? And if they see a person that isn't above reproach, if they see a person that blatantly makes mistakes and doesn't care and doesn't seek out the counsel of other people and isn't humble enough to realize that that maybe they're missing something, then they're going to get a very skewed vision of what Jesus Christ is actually like. That's something that should be a reminder and a motivator to all of us to live a life like Samuel that is above reproach. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.